I had to decide that decision that at some point every entrepreneur has to take, which is, am I going to give up the, for me, it was a very well-paid day job, and go on to virtually no money at all under the belief that you can build something that's going to be worthwhile. I certainly did a lot of soul searching about was this fair to my kids. That's Louise Hill, the co-founder and COO of GoHenry, a prepaid debit card and app designed for children. It allows parents to do stuff like send money to their kids, get real-time updates and customize controls, but it also helps children learn about personal finance. They've built financial education into the app, like learning about investing or credit. The idea is to help kids reach financial well-being when they become adults. If you're a regular listener of this show, you'll know it's a real bugbear of mine that we're not taught about this kind of stuff in schools. It's so important. So I'm delighted to be chatting with Louise today, who is also a joy to talk to. Let's find out where it all began for her. I grew up in Lowestoft in the 1960s and 70s. And at that time in Lowestoft, probably the most famous thing about it was that it is the most easterly point in Great Britain. And there's even a big lump, there was a big lump of concrete on the end of the pier that told everybody that. But it was a fantastic childhood. I have two younger siblings, a brother and a sister. We lived very close to the beach. So summer or winter, I spent a lot of my time when I wasn't at school on the beach or hanging out on the beach or doing something on the beach. And um, yeah, sickeningly, had a, had a great childhood. Having said that, as soon as I was 18 and finished my A-levels, I was off and I've no, never gone back to live in Lowestoft. I was lucky enough to go to London to go to university and things fascinated me from there. So I, I studied languages at university and um, that gave me the chance whilst I was still doing my degree to go and live in the south of France and then in Paris and spend also spend six months in Innsbruck. And um, I never went back. I, I stayed in London. I moved to the south of France after my degree. I, I've, I've sort of moved around since then. And you talk about, you know, your happy childhood and stuff. What impact do you think your parents had on your ultimate career path? Well, do you know, I've been asked what makes an entrepreneur. And, you know, that's an incredibly hard question to answer. And I've thought about it long and hard because, I've you know, I've been asked in an interview and thought, I don't know. I think one of the differences between an entrepreneur and a non-entrepreneur, if that exists... Yeah, an entrepreneur, we've just made it up. It's perfect. <laughs> That's a also good Also known word. as most people, but an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Is that at some point, an entrepreneur says, I'm going to do this. And whether that is jumping off the cliff, I think... In hindsight, I look back at my childhood and I really didn't realise at the time just how much this fact has influenced who I am and the decisions that I've taken in my life. But my parents always used to encourage the three of us to try stuff. Didn't matter what, you know, whether it was baking a particular type of cake or a big life change. My dad's mantra was, what's the worst that can happen? If it goes wrong, you start again. You pick yourself up, go again. And, you know, growing up, you just thought, yeah, Dad, whatever. But when I look back on that and reflect on that, it gave the three of us a huge sense of confidence and 
the confidence to dare to fail because you kind of knew you, you fail, you start again, you pick yourself up, hey-ho. And um, maybe that's what triggered starting businesses. Go Henry isn't the first business that I've started. Maybe it isn't. But uh, when I look back on that, I, I think that definitely influenced who I am today. So dad obviously had quite an impressive influence on your, uh, on your attitude in general growing up. What about your relationship with money? Did you learn about money as a kid? I think not so much in the way that I was formally taught by my parents about managing money. But when I was younger, money was quite tight. And there was always a conversation about what we would do and what we wouldn't do and what we could afford and what we couldn't afford. And I think that prepares you to some extent. My parents gave me pocket money from from a very early age, not a lot, but they did give us money that we had total control over. And, you know, I can remember agonising decisions about whether I bought the Bunty comic this week or whether I saved it up because I really, really wanted the peasant skirt that was all the the rage at the um, boutique in Lowestoft. It was being conscious of decisions around money and how those decisions influenced, you know, the outcome was influenced by the decisions you took on with money. So indirectly taught, I think. Yeah, because I'm particularly interested in, in exploring this question with you because I didn't grow up understanding money. And actually, I, I feel like there is a sort of mature, maturation that happens at some point in your life when you have to grow up a bit beyond just after uni and looking after yourself, where, you know, you have to understand the dynamics of things like leverage and compound growth and all of the things that you sort of read about, which, you know, aren't necessarily, I think, very misconception. They're not things that you have to know as an entrepreneur, because I've been an entrepreneur for almost 10 years. And I can say that I have only really learned about money in the last two years. And before that, my actual probably total education around the very high level concepts of money came from reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I still think is very good and really helps you understand the fundamental differences between liabilities and assets, which I've always held true. But I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, there's also a misconception that, uh, you know, all entrepreneurs make lots of money and have lots of money. And actually in my journey, you know, I'm finally onto a good thing, but most of the money that I've made has come from investments and using my money wisely and not spending it on myself. And I then became a father recently, nine months ago. And now philosophically, I'm just utterly fascinated in how do I bring up a child who does understand money, who respects money, doesn't spend frivolously. And so you can imagine, I'm very excited to speak to you um, because of what Go Henry does. Um, and we will come on to all of this. But this is, I want to give you some of the context of why I'm asking you these personal questions and why I personally find it so interesting because I'm 35 and I'm only just learning about this stuff now. <laughs> no, that really helps actually. And yes, you know, it's interesting because for me, it was my kids that triggered Go Henry. It really was my two kids standing in front of me with their hands out. And me about to give them, well, me giving them cash as pocket money and, you know, to start with never having the right change in my pocket because I didn't use a lot of cash. But it was the period where they were lucky enough to both have been given iPods for either Christmas or birthdays. And I had given the login to my iTunes account and they were 
downloading music. Well, there's a surprise. And, and, you know, having a great time doing that, but without any concept at all that that was spending money. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how do I, uh, with, you know, nag them constantly, but how do I teach them that that's money they're spending? In those days, Apple used to send you an email with an invoice attached to it for every download. I think there used to be 79p, if I remember rightly. This is betraying a bit of my character. I started printing those out and pinning them onto the fridge or, you know, with the magnet onto the fridge. And then on a Saturday morning, kind of having this conversation with the two of them going, you know, child number one, you've spent this much this week. So instead of five pounds, you're only going to get whatever it was, 80p or one pound 20. And there would be this little sad face in front of me with a, um, a glum, glum smile. And I'm the bad guy again. And... I couldn't get my head round, you know, that to me was the only tool I had to teach them that they'd made decisions that had eaten into their funds. And I started talking about it actually at a school football match with other parents and just all these stories started coming out about the girl who'd run up a £600 bill on her dad's credit card through her PlayStation or Xbox or whichever one it was. This is still, I, I trot this story out again and again, but still one of my favourites. The little boy whose mum had been looking out of the living room window and had seen a flatbed truck pull up outside the house with an old car on it, which he'd just bought on eBay because he thought it was a model. Um, and it wasn't a model, it was a full-size old car. And basically all these tales of kids who were using money online without a clue of what that actually meant. And um, there were two of the dads at the school who I used to talk to quite a lot. And the three of us started to meet on a Thursday evening to see whether there was something that we could build that would address this problem. That was the seed idea for what originally was called pocket money, but is now Go Henry. Amazing. All right. Lots of questions. Let's park that for a moment and let's take a little step back in time. So before Go Henry, what were you doing? Before you were, you know, talking to these two dads about the little rascals spending everyone's money without giving a shit. What? <laughs> well, maybe they were giving a shit. They just didn't actively realise. What were you doing before that? My background, I joined after university. I joined the House of Fraser on a, their graduate fast track programme. So retail. And then after a couple of years in retail where I was based in mostly in Cardiff in, in uh, the howls of Cardiff there I joined an American management consultancy group and had the most amazing six seven years traveling all over Europe in, in particular a little bit in the states as well working with all kinds of companies manufacturing banking services all kinds of things kind of process improvements, um, saving money fundamentally for them. And I ended up leading a huge project with Next to launch Next Directory. And Next Directory at its time was, was and it is an awful long time ago now, I, th I think there's something like 28 years ago it was launched, possibly even longer. But at the time it, it was groundbreaking in that it, it took what used to be called home shopping from being agents, usually housewives who, who took catalogues out to their friends and sold goods to their friends, into being direct to consumer, so a proper B2C business. 
And that meant they needed to speed up all of the operational processes. And, and I had a team of 50, over 50 people based in Bradford working to pull together and chip, put all the changes in place to build those new systems. And that kind of then led me into home shopping just as it was changing into e-com. And it was a fantastically exciting time because all the new e-com brands were launching and people like John Lewis and Marks and & Spencers and Debenhams were realising that, oh, actually, we have to do this too. So my, my career sort of morphed into e-com and then helping a lot of those big bricks and mortar companies set up e-com systems and e-com distribution and some of the big uh, e-com groups as well. And then in, I'm trying to think when, 1998, I was with the Innovations Group, which was uh, a big group of, well, catalogues that used to fall out of your Sunday papers once upon a time, and the Innovations Report and, and you know, things you never knew you needed to buy, like nasal hair trimmers or the great big hands to pick up your leaves in your garden. You know, we laugh at the products, but we used to sell millions of them. And that was sold to the Arcadia Group, which then split into the Burton Group and Debenhams. And I ended up in Debenhams launching their first online offering and taking their wedding service online. And I, because I didn't know what was going to happen to me and where I was going to end up in that move, I had paired up with the merchandise director from the Innovations Group and we launched our own e-com business called Manners Mail Order. And it was traditional country house style, obviously sold online and, and by, via catalogue. And uh, I ended up selling that to a large retail group in 2002. And that really was, I was furious about that at the time, not, not the fact that they bought it, but we built a business we were relatively successful. We, we got up to about £5 million turnover. Uh, we were in year four. We were making a small profit and paying ourselves properly. But we realised that to scale, which we both wanted to do, one of us, if not both of us, needed to step away to, from the business to go and find investors. And there was no way at all we could do that without the business falling apart we were too integral to the business and we didn't have enough funds to be able to bring someone in to run the business whilst we went and found funding. My learning from that was if you want to scale, you need to build from scale, you need to build for scale from day one. I stayed with the, the group that uh, we sold to. I stayed with them for 18 months and then I went back to e-com and worked as an independent consultant for e-com groups um, for a number of years. And I ended up at the Findel Group, which is a, a huge uh, Manchester-based organisation with, with multiple e-com brands within it. I, I enjoyed that a lot. But uh, then there was the opportunity with Go Henry, and I had to decide that decision that at some point every entrepreneur has to take, which is, am I going to give up the... For me, it was a very well-paid day job and go on to virtually no money at all under the belief that you can build something that's going to be worthwhile. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. 
It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I certainly did a lot of soul searching about was this fair to my kids? You know, I did have a conversation with them about this would mean uh, maybe no foreign holidays for a little while and uh, maybe some of the delights of Sky, everything would have to go down to Freeview and, and you know, some, some really practical changes that we would need to make to be able to live on the salary I'd be able to take. And they were up for it, but that's a, a kid being enthusiastic about... Uh, what sounds like an adventure. It's not the reality of, no, we can't go on holiday this year, or, yeah, we can swap houses with your aunt in Scotland, but that's it. So there was definitely parental guilt kicking in there. And, yes, there were some friends who absolutely supported what I was doing, and there I know there are some who think, who thought at the time that I was completely potty. I can remember, oh, gosh, probably a year and a half in, a friend's wife popped into the office and, and was having a chat and sort of saying, you know, how was, how was it going? And I said, oh, no, things, things are great. And, and she said, oh, what about money? Uh, and I said, oh, we've, we've got, no, we've got about eight months runway. And I was saying that thing, oh, this is fantastic. I've got eight months of money ahead of me. We're, we're good for the moment. Obviously, I'm looking for more, but, you know, we're, we're in a strong position for a startup. But her reaction was totally different. She, she was like, oh, my God. And she grabbed my arm. She said, oh, what are you going to do? Are you all right? I mean, and I thought, oh, that's a totally different viewpoint, isn't it? And that's interesting. Do non-entrepreneurs, how do they comprehend the fact that you don't know where the funding for the business is going to come from in nine months or a year? Or, you know, it, it, it is different pressures, different viewpoints. So you have ended up making your choices, leaving your job, starting Go Henry, 
hang out with these, uh, you know, two fellow. Uh, so, so are they two dads from the same school? Yeah. And so, do they have previous business experience? So, my background, as as you've already heard, is is operations and building teams, and uh, you know, I used to put on my CV making things happen. Uh, Doug, his background was tech infrastructure. So he knew all about tech stacks and and infrastructure and the IT that you need to build. And then the other dad, his background was marketing. And he'd built a a really successful marketing agency, a multi-thread, I don't don't know the correct terminology, but marketing agency in London and had sold it probably five years previously. So one of us, the, the marketing guy, his mission was to go and find our seed funding, create belief, do the marketing and, and find our seed funders. Doug, his, his goal was figure out the tech stack and, and, and make sure we put, build all of that together. And mine was build the team, uh, stitch together the supply chain that we needed because obviously we had to plug into all of the banking systems and put together the processes and controls that the company needed to run. And the three of us worked really well together to do that. And we found our seed funding. It took us 14, 15 months. It wasn't a short, quick, easy journey. But we found our seed funding and started to build the product. And um, the first first iteration, which was called Pocket Money. And um, one, of the, one of the team... So the marketing guy decided that uh, this wasn't for him. He he wanted to go and do something else. And so he left uh, very, very early on, maybe before the end of the first year, certainly just after the end of the first year. Doug stayed with us two and a half years, but needed to go back to a corporate salary for family reasons and did that. And... Uh, that left me as, uh, dare I say, last man standing. <laughs> you dare not, last person standing <laughs> at the very least. Okay, so what is the reason behind Go Henry? What What is that name about? Because <laughs> Pocket Money is quite a good name. Go Henry, well, I will reserve my opinion, you know, in public. It's an unusual name, let's say. Yep, it is. So Pocket Money was originally spelt P-K-T-M-N-Y. So if you think about that, take all the vowels out, basically. And at the time, I can remember us being so pleased with ourselves. We thought it was such a clever name. And then people started phoning up and asking, could they speak to Louise from... Or there'd be a journalist writing about us and they'd say, oh, see what they've done there. It's, it's sort of text speak. And every time the name came up, somebody had to explain it. So we're, we're like, how stupid could we possibly have been? You know, we're a digital business. What matters with a digital business is everybody understands the name immediately, they can spell it, they can search for it, and they find it. That's what matters. So, yeah, we decided we were going to rebrand. And actually, the story behind Go Henry, the, the name is, is quite a funny one. We brought the marketing team to the little offices we had. It was a, an old shop, um, sweet shop in Lymington, just off the high street. And there were two teams of people there. I was with the marketing team and we and the senior team, and we were talking about, you know, what do we want to put across? What are we trying to say? What who are we talking to? Because we have, you know, parents and kids from six to eighteen. That's a vast range of, of an audience. 
And we'd come up with Go. We, we wanted the concept of Go. My dad always used to encourage us to have a Go, to try stuff. That's where that had come from and that my ethos for the company is that people have a Go, people try things. So we'd anchored on Go and the marketing team were coming up with all of these Go this, Go that, Go... None of it was really hitting the right note for us. And over at the back of the office, um, a lady who's still with us today called Claire was working through looking at our customer database and trying, we made the mistake of not flagging beta customers and test uh, test accounts uh, with a specific source code so that we could exclude them from reporting. So she was going through trying to look, you know, trying to flag those accounts and she suddenly piped up and she said, guess what the name was of the first person who ever used a pocket money card? And, of course, we're all like, what? And you now know what I'm going to say. It was an 11-year-old boy called Henry who lived in Bristol. And um, somebody in the marketing side said, go Henry. And that's where the name came from. OK, now is the perfect time in the interview to actually ask you, what is go Henry? <laughs> so if you'd asked me six years ago, I'd have said we were a prepaid debit card designed for kids aged 6 to 18. And now I will tell you it is a prepaid debit card and financial education app designed for kids aged 6 to 18. But the thing that hasn't changed is our mission. And since day one, that has been to make every kid smart with money. Got some little goosebumps, actually. Um, <laughs> interestingly, I'd love to know a little bit about your your journey as the founder developing developing this product with insights and experience from your own community of customers. So I think where we started from, I, I said originally it was a personal need. It was ha- what surely there must be a tool out there that helps me teach my kids about what was becoming an increasingly digital world of money. But when we started looking at research and, and talking to people, we immediately, I guess, proved the point that we thought we knew already, which is that most kids leave school without any education around how to manage money. And that was the gap that we wanted to fill. Because as you say, parents might want to teach their kids about money, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have the tools or even the knowledge to do that. And schools do a fantastic job. And back in 20, I think it was 14, um, the government did make financial education mandatory in the secondary school curriculum. But that is only for non-academy schools. And now they've moved to all academy schools. Uh, All schools have to become part of an academy. So that has very much been diluted. And there is nothing still in primary schools. So... We wanted to give parents a tool to teach their kids about, we we characterised four pillars, earning, saving, spending and giving. And we wanted parents to have oversight of, of their kids' activity on those four pillars so that they could see what they were doing. But true to, I guess, my roots, it had to be a practical tool. I didn't want to produce a financial education lessons or games as a standalone, it had to be a way that kids could use money in the way that they were going to need to use money as they grew up, but with with guardrails on, you know, with safety wheels, whatever you want to call it, with, where the parent could set the limits so that they were comfortable with what their kids were doing. 
So to blow our own trumpets, we were the first to market in that space, um, pioneering the category. And that in itself gave us challenges because, you know, in that tiny second, microsecond you have of somebody's attention, we weren't able to say, hey, we're like this brand, but better. We had to say what we were and why the parent needed us. Uh, we had to kind of explain what the heck we were doing and why it was important and why they needed to sign up. And um, that took quite a bit of experimentation to find the best way to reach parents and, and communicate that clearly so that they did sign up. And I think also, you know, in the early days, I was terrified that the high street banks would take a look at what we were doing and, and just do it for free because they could. But I have learnt, learnt over the last 10 years... Number one, it's not that simple. Number two, the big banks are doing lots of other stuff as well. And I, I think, you know, kids and teens are at the heart of everything that we do. It's not a, an add-on product for us as it might be for one of the major banks. It's the reason we exist. So we put financial education, we put the tools to use money and learn to use money right at the centre of, of Go Henry and, and, and what we offer to the parents and kids that are using us. Amazing. Okay, so moving aside from the fact that you've already obviously explained with your co-founders leaving, what have been some of the more challenging parts of your journey that, you know, is worth reflecting on, but, you know, there might even be some insights for people listening to understand how to navigate them? I guess I, I sort of mentioned one that because we were first in the category uh, with a product like this, when you're that new kid on the block and nobody's heard of you, and particularly perhaps in financial services, you have to work really hard to build a customer base that trusts you. So, you know, while we were busy explaining what we were and why people needed us, that was quite tough. And trying to find the best call to action, the best way to talk to our customers to explain what we were. And, and we went through it again when we launched in the US because... Intellectually, you know that you need to localise your product, your, your app, your content. Everything has to be localised. And that doesn't just mean changing the S's to Z's. But some of the messaging that we used in, in some of our digital ads, it was interesting to see how it brought in very different audiences in the US to what it brings in in the UK. There was quite a lot of, well, obviously, there was lots of test and refine and test and change and test again. But really interesting to see how the same words garnered a very different reaction in the US. And, um, you know, as, as we look to roll out uh, in Europe, I know we're going to find the same thing. The nuances of language, of culture, really make a difference. Yeah, and I guess every, every I mean, every country has a very different relationship with money, of course, but um, the US certainly a very aggressive consumer culture. Um, can you give me some headline figures as well? So tell me, you mentioned you've got 2 million customers over a 10-year period, right? What is the business model? How does GoHenry make money? Very simple. We charge a subscription fee every month, which the parent pays, not the kids. And in the UK, that's £2.99 a month. Would be quite a funny irony, right? It's just a secret, a secret charge on their iTunes account. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't do that. Um, Mum and dad pay. So, yeah, 2 99 in the UK. It's $3.99 in the US. 
If you choose one of our standard cards, they're free. But if you choose one of our snazzy, we call them customized cards, uh, we, we do all kinds of card partnerships. You can have a, a card with your name on it. I don't mean, you know, the printed name, the boring printed name at the bottom. You can have uh, Go Henry, you can have Go Dan, Go Louise, Go whatever, as long as it's not rude, on your card. And, and I think we've got about 70, 80 different card designs available at the moment. Amazing. I guess it sounds like there's just a very clear, because, you know, a lot of businesses obviously struggle with product market fit, especially finding the right revenue targets and ways to make money, etc. Yours is so so simple and clear and obviously you know, it's a low enough cost with a high enough value proposition for parents that it does just seem like such a no-brainer. How have you, like, how have you funded the journey? So what kind of funding have you had to take in over the time? Would you have done it differently? And I guess what's on the horizon? Because, you know, launching in America is not cheap. <laughs> no. So we, we have not taken what I guess you would call the traditional route with funding. We raised just over £600,000 as our seed funding to be able to build and launch the product. Um, and that, that was largely because it's quite expensive to plug into all of the banking systems. But we did that. And then we had a couple of small rounds where our seed funders were good enough to follow and brought in a few other investors as well. And then in 2016, we were preparing to do, I suppose, a, a traditional funding round. And we were starting to prepare to go to VCs. And somebody talked to us about crowdfunding. And we thought, hmm, from everything we were being told, we seemed to be a good fit. And so we originally, we thought, well, we'll try this crowdfunding. But, you know, obviously we'll need to go VC as well. And we, we were looking, so we set a target in, in those days, because it does feel like a lifetime ago now, there were some rules around crowdfunding that made it quite risky. If you, you had to set a target, and then if you didn't meet that target, even if you were short by a pound, you had to give all of the money back. And there was a limit on it of 5 million euros. Anyway, we thought we would go for it. We were told if you're B2C... If you can clearly articulate your mission and your purpose and your offer, then it can be a very positive experience. And if you have a customer base you can speak to who already persuaded you're a good thing, so much the better. So we set ourselves a target of £2 million. We went out in a, a private crowdfund for two days over a weekend to our existing investors and at that time, 50,000, 60,000 customers, by Sunday lunchtime, we'd hit our £2 million target and we hadn't even opened to the public at that point. So we increased our target and carried on and um, became the first company ever to hit that limit of €5 million. Euros, and we actually had to close the crowdfunding at that point. It meant we didn't have to go to VCs and... One of the things for me was the satisfaction in knowing that, that over a million pounds of that four million came from GoHenry customers, which, you know, tells us we were doing something right. And then in 2018, we went again. We did, we did another crowdfunding round, 
both times we went with Crowdcube, who you'll know is one of the biggest crowdfunding providers out there, and they've been great partners. And we raised £6 million that time with 3,000 investors taking part, and about half of those were customers again. So we finally did a Series A, which we closed in December 2020, without having met any of the funds or any of the individuals face-to-face, because it was all in the middle of the pandemic. But we raised $40 million from Edison, who are a growth equity fund in the States, Edison Partners, and uh, Revia, who are a French growth equity fund who invest in what they call tech for good, and then um, some from City Ventures, part of Citibank, and some from Muse Capital. And that was our last funding round. Any more on the horizon? We're working towards a B-series, yeah. We will be heading that way shortly. And how do you feel about um, like anxiety almost? But I didn't want to call it financial anxiety because that might, might be me projecting on you. But, you know, it's very different running a company uh, that's EBITDA profitable and, you know, uh, all has a lot going for it and, you know, 2 million monthly paying customers at 2.99 and all of this stuff. But then you are on a hamster wheel one way or another. You're obviously an ambitious human being. Um, you've done your Series A and now you're talking about a Series B and the reality of this stuff is the exit gets further and further away, the risk piled onto the business um, gets considerably larger and the goalposts for both the opportunity but also the chance to fail all stack up in a different kind of way. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, how your relationship with managing the pace and the consideration for the expectations on you um, have changed to what they were maybe five years ago, how you're handling that. Yes, the pressure definitely ramps up. We have always set out to build Go Henry in a sustainable way. That's a really easy thing to say. And now I need to explain what I mean by that. So, you know, th- there is a school of thought that says, usually says American funds don't care about your bottom line. They don't care about monetization. They care about growth and nothing else. I think there possibly was a time when that was true. And there have been periods in the last 10 years, as we've been talking to funds and and potential investors, when that has been true. I don't think it's true at the moment. I don't think it's been true for the last year. I think the American, if you can generalise and say the American viewpoint, has been more towards sound unit economics as well as growth, or at least a a very clear path to monetization. And where am I going with this? So we... We did not, we never ever set out to take that route of we'll just do growth. We'll figure out how to pay for it later. That was not the plan. We built it with sound unit economics and every now and then we really check those unit economics and and all of us in the business, there are some key figures we watch very, very carefully. And I guess, you know, I made that point about being EBITDA positive. One, One strength that that gives us and the fact that we rely a lot on digital advertising is that we can turn the tap on and we can turn the tap, I won't say off, but we can turn it down. So we really do watch our key numbers. And if we're bringing in customers at a cost that we're happy with, 
we will turn the tap up. And if for some reason, let's say, Facebook changes all its algorithms like it did a little while ago, or something happens in, in the, the world that causes something to change, we can turn that tap down and not grow quite as fast for, you know, that could be for three days or for a month to control the costs. And that, that gives us strength because, you know, there is a pressure there because if we want to continue the growth journey and we want to continue the story for investors so that when we do go out for a Series B, we've got the hockey stick curve that everybody dreams of. There is that pressure. But actually, in terms of is our business a sound business? Can can we go to sleep at night? Are we absolutely convinced that we can pay everybody and we continue to exist? Yeah, without question, because we just dial down the advertising spend. Okay. So I guess coming towards the end of the interview, let's talk a little bit about money. Do you have any lessons or insights about being on a journey as a founder and being able to actually realize some of the value that you are creating along the way? Because this is also one of the areas where founders get really caught out. And when we're trying to educate founders about the myriad problems that they face on the journey, more and more often this comes up the fact that people are very glad they have taken secondary on the journey so they can actually enjoy their life and not have to stress about an early exit? So um, I think I'm going to answer that by referring back to your new word, entrepreneur. So I think people who are not in, in the startup environment, a lot of people assume that because I'm part of a business that's now, I think we've we've just gone over 300 heads in the business that's across the UK and the US. We've just moved to slightly bigger offices in Limington. They, they assume I'm pretty wealthy and I'm not. <laughs> As you say, I, I have not, you know, and, until the point at which a founder exits, um, you don't reap the rewards of, of what you've built. Secondaries, yeah. So in the Series A, I did speak to the funds and ask. I I was very nervous about it to start with, I have to say, because I was concerned that it might send the wrong signal to the investors that I wanted to release some money. And I spoke to quite a few people about it and, and actually without exception they all said because you know I wasn't asking to take out 80% of, of my shares I uh, they said if you're asking for a small amount anybody who invests in startups understands that the founder needs to release something to uh, to start to make it worthwhile and I did ask for that and they were very very happy to support me in that so yes I did participate in a, a, a small secondaries whatever you call it yeah. okay um, what is the one thing? What is the one thing that you would like uh, kids to understand about money above anything else? So what is the key lesson that you think is worth knowing? Goodness, I think that it is a tool that empowers you. That if you manage it, it is something that can bring you great strength and help you do what you want to do with your life. Amazing, Louise. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media with Will Stollerman, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.